So hello, uh, good morning, evening or afternoon, depending on when you are, when you tune into this latest Susty Talk interview from ED. Susty Talks are our long-standing, ongoing series of uh, interviews with sustainability and climate leaders and experts. It was first launched during the first lockdown here in UK in uh, the early 2020. It's now continuing towards the end of 2022 to help keep us all informed, inspired and connected in this much more kind of flexible and remote ways of working that we still find ourselves in. And this latest interview forms part of our Net Zero November month of uh, online content dedicated to helping businesses combat the climate crisis and reach net zero emissions in a just manner. Uh, but obviously, the main focal point of this discussion is that of COP27. At the, time of, at the time of this recording, it's been a little over 48 hours since the gavel came down on an agreement in Egypt. Uh, so whilst that dust is still setting, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are still kind of combing through the final text and what that all means. I'm hoping that I can, uh, well, not myself personally, but I'm hoping that our guests will be able to shed a bit of light as to what uh, happened at COP and what that means. Uh, so here to discuss that agreement in more detail is Dr. Nina Seeger, who is the Research Director for Sustainable Finance at the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership, uh, Sizzle, as we uh, commonly refer it to on ED. So, Nina, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, how are you, firstly? I imagine uh, probably quite tired after uh, two intense weeks. Thank you for having me. Yes, just just a little bit. I think we're all of us are slightly running on fumes because um, it's been it's been quite an intensive time uh, at COP, but also coming back from COP and digesting a little bit what we've got happening right now and what's happened on the ground. And you obviously were on the ground, you were in Egypt, um, we, we were discussing before, um, almost for the entirety uh, of, of the, the, the two weeks. It'd be great to get an idea for, for our listeners um, what it was like for you personally in terms of just the on the ground atmosphere and mood. You know, Glasgow was this kind of real kind of thriving hub of, of activity was was that similar in 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 Sharm or, or was it a little bit more um a little bit more kind of well I suppose less densely populated what, what was the general atmosphere there so it was quite interesting if you think about how Glasgow felt to me sometimes Glasgow felt a little bit like a combination of climate negotiations and world economic forum in terms of you know finance and businesses showing up and standing up and declaring commitment I think COP27 felt very different in the sense that there was a, tr a negotiations track, obviously, and it was quite active. There was also a business and finance track, but the feeling was more of a trade fair almost. So there was less announcements, but there were a lot of discussions, closed door discussions, open door discussions on actually how do you go about implementing some of the stuff. What innovation do you need? Where do you source that innovation? Who do you collaborate with? And sometimes it felt like businesses and financial organizations came less to announce and more to try to figure out actually how do we get this done with a lot more of a realistic feeling about it. I think in terms of attendance, it was also slightly different and I it, it feels like that reflects actually some of the structural problems that we have around financing emerging markets. If you think about financial institutions that came, because this was built an African COP, an implementation COP, an adaptation COP, a lot of financial institutions who either felt they didn't have 
presence in Africa or presence on the ground, and they weren't currently active in adaptation, didn't send big teams. There were a number of institutions that sent actually quite big teams. And it was quite interesting to see a lot of American financial institutions very present and talking a lot of, around innovations and opportunities. And I think that was the follow up to the Inflation Reduction Act effectively um, being implemented. But they were notably less in terms of numbers of financial institutions. And I think it reflects the issue we have currently where Private finance has a real struggle into investing in um, in Africa, into investing in Southeast Asia with regards to mitigation and adaptation. And the fact that they weren't there is was a little bit of kind of an indication of an issue that we have to solve. We need to, to draw them in closer so they would feel that actually they have a stake in this as well. It's a... Two weeks flies by at, at, at a cop, but but the through the sheer amount of volume of discussions that go on, I imagine the the kind of the sense around those discussions changes from from week one. Perhaps the optimism is, is high, and then as week two comes on, especially when it was getting quite clear that this cop would overrun, um, as most cops tend to do in fairness. But as as kind of uh, as we kind of kept hitting these kind of brick walls around issues that needed to be solved around loss and damage, and we'll come on to that big breakthrough soon. And around uh, climate finance and who pays for 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 what? How you know how how does um, a a person like so if he's on the ground kind of keep morale, keep that optimism up during what can be probably long hours, quite frustrating. There was also reports that there was no water or coffee at times. You know how how do you keep optimism high during a time where the discussions that are going on are critical, but also can be frustratingly, um, I suppose, non-resultive in terms of there's not much coming out of it. Yeah, so that's I mean that's quite an interesting question in the sense that I felt like the first week had a lot of energy, especially with finance. I mean, you know, most financial providers who did send people teams to COP were there for that first week. So it felt very buzzy. Second week, I think the beginning of the second week, you started kind of getting that expectation that we're about to get actually some of the negotiations, some of those results of the negotiations. And there was a little bit of a dip. But I have to say, once the loss and damage conversation became more of a reality, so it went from it's on the agenda to we actually might get something coming out of this COP, which has loss and damage in the cover tax. I think that was quite exciting. And obviously, the last couple of days was uh, a big uh, seesaw in the sense of thinking through whether we will get the financial reform language, thinking through whether actually fossil fuels, you know, India went quite hard saying, let's not just have coal, let's have fossil fuels language in and thinking, well, you know, maybe that might be a possibility that we actually end up with that language. G20 results when they came through the communique, when they came through, um, I think the expectations for that communique were quite low, but it delivered quite well because the one and a half degree language was there. COP15 language was in the G20 communique, right? Which made us think that actually we might have COP15 language in the uh, COP27 
cover text, and it didn't, you know, it didn't quite get that far. So there were, I think there were, there were ups and downs. I do think that the level of energy was very different to that of Glasgow. I mean, obviously, you know, Glasgow COP was in the middle of a very, um, you know, very energizing uh, town. Right, Glasgow has this this feel, this mood to it, whereas Charlemagne comparatively um, is quite touristy, and it didn't have that. I think there was engagement within the COP venue, but it wasn't in the same way when you walked out of the COP venue and you felt the mood and the spirit, and you knew that you were actually trying to achieve things that really, really mattered. Whereas here, it felt slightly kind of separate. And I want to get on to the um the end result. Um and um we were we were speaking before you said that you um you actually had to fly out, you know, obviously you were expecting we were expecting the announcement before and you kind of you kind of landed back uh, away from Sharm and you were having to watch for the plenaries um uh, uh, remotely as it came through very kind of early hours of the morning that this this cover text came through. And there was some some groundbreaking stuff there that the 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 agreement the funding agreement finally set up around loss and damage and and it's such an interesting and important subject, loss and damage. You know, developing nations and island states have been calling for this since the 1990s, and it's taken, you know, uh, two decades to essentially get something down uh, and formalised in the, the agreement. I'd like to get your views on just how big a deal this is and what can we expect to happen in this area, certainly around kind of how financial markets and, and financial flows will have to change as a result because of that loss and damage uh, agreement. Well, I think it's huge. I mean, actually, even if you think at, look at the reactions that are filtering through post-COP27 reaction. There is a lot of disappointment um, from developed world around the lack of one and a half degree ambition and around kind of that fossil fuel language. But if you look at the energy and the excitement around having that loss and damage language in, around agreeing of an actual fund, I think that was huge because it also builds a little bit more of trust between the two, you know, between developed and developing. Because I think what we've had so far is quite a lot of pushing, but not quite as much solidarity demonstrated. And we, you know, the fact that we haven't delivered on a hundred billion, um, uh, financing a year has been coming up and again and again, and it was a, a clear issue. So actually agreeing a structure, even though that we don't really have much details of what it's going to look like, how it's going to be operationalized, you know, where's the money going to come from? All of those things will decide. But just that announcement, I think, was quite key. I, I think the other part of it was this announcement of Global Shield, which I think is slightly misnamed because it's a climate risk disaster um, kind of recovery program. So it's less about protecting communities from disasters. It's more about helping them build resilience to be able to spring back much quicker. And we've seen uh, funding delivered into that. So I think those two things were quite important. The other thing that kind of gets um, that is quite close to that discussion is this whole um, conversation around the Bridgetown agenda. So effectively thinking about, and we didn't land onto the full bridge down agenda, but we landed on language that talks about how do we reform our multilateral development banks and international 
um, financing institutions to de-risk private finance and enable private finance to flow, but also to make it a lot easier to fund mitigation adaptation. The, I think the entire ask was closer to special drawing rates and actually thinking through things like, you know, how do we help um, emerging markets that are hit by multiple crises at the same time actually have enough financing ability to deal with them and then thus enable them to um, re- act and to devote a lot more attention to mitigation. So we didn't get quite as far, but the fact that there is this reform language in there, the fact that there is um, this conversation around de-risking is a step in the right direction. You mentioned language and language is so important in the in the kind of final text. I'm always as a journalist, I'm always fascinated by the the phrases that the UN kind of works and how it, it generally means different things. If you were just to have a kind of layman's conversation in the street and news kind of expresses concern or urgently revisit, it kind of means different stuff in, in UN speak. And there was obviously some uh, some disappointing, I suppose, watering down for the second year running around uh, kind of energy and fossil fuels that we had phase out to phase down last year with, um, with with fossil fuel and financing. And now we've kind of got this inclusion, this low emissions kind of bracketed loophole and people aren't quite sure what that necessarily means. And there's a, some would argue that it could act as a loophole to allow for further fossil fuel development. And, and there are questions whether, you know, I think the, the phrase is 1.5C is very much still in the emergency room. Um, but when you couple that with the landmark um, breakthroughs we had around loss and damage and the Global Shield and the Bridgetown stuff, as you mentioned, how would you overall, overall summarise this COP? Would it be remembered as a, as a good COP or a bad COP? I think it'll be remembered as a COP where we finally started delivering on loss and damage. I think that's probably the biggest issue by far. Yes, there was softening of language. And actually, you know, if you become a UN uh, nerd or geek or whatever you want to call it, and you go into, you know, the difference between the urge and the welcome and the recall and whatnot, if you look at the types of verbs that were used in the final cover text compared to the first versions of the cover text, that um, the, the drive has come down. And, you know, it's come down with obviously the fossil fuel language didn't get in uh Kind of the Glasgow language around coal was almost a copy paste into into this one. Um, the one thing that I uh, there's actually there are two things that I find quite important about this particular cover text and quite relevant. One is we have had this issue around uh, the ability of developed markets to decouple GDP from emissions versus the inability of developing markets to do the same. So we've had kind of, you know, that decoupling already there for the much more developed countries and completely not for the developing world. And what was interesting is finding this text, and it's not getting quite as much press coverage as I actually like for it to. In this text, there is a couple of paragraphs on technology transfer, on capacity building, So you actually start to see that recognition that it's not only that we need to deliver finance, but we also need to share technologies and we also need to build capacity to enable people to mitigate and to react quicker. I think that's one point. The second point, which I found quite interesting, 
is this language around welcoming the high-level expert group on net zero um, emissions, kind of commitments of non-state entities. And effectively, that report is very relevant to most private actors. And, you know, we were talking about how is this relevant to businesses? How is this relevant to financial institutions? What does it mean? Actually, the fact that there is language welcoming um, that report is quite key. And in there, you have quite interesting uh, language around greenwashing, about when you can actually carbon offset, um, about what kind of processes do you need uh, to put together to make it um, quite uh, to kind of to, to look at transparency and accountability around the targets, around transition plans, around what are the organizations lobbying for and against. So to me, that's probably the most direct transfer over to, you know, when people are starting to think about, well, OK, so, you know, it's been really exciting. We've seen a lot of this negotiation, some things we were very disappointed with, some things we're less disappointed. But what does that mean for me? You know, what do I do tomorrow that I didn't do yesterday? And my urge would be for private financial institutions and, and corporates is to look at that report and start seeing actually where that focus is going to go. And the focus is going to go on accountability and on transparency as well. Well, my uh, my final question, Nina, was going to actually be what should corporates be, be focusing on post-COP? Uh, you kind of already answered that by, by making sure they read that uh, report. But in terms of just 2023 and obviously we've got COP15 coming up in a couple of weeks, which is very um, heavy. Uh, hopefully we finally get this kind of sign off on this global biodiversity deal, the kind of Paris Agreement for, 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 for nature, if you will. But what, uh, what do you see kind of being those key trends in 2023? Is it, is it kind of just a reiteration of what you mentioned around transparency and action or? Well, so COP15 is going to be, hopefully, will be a huge deal. Um, we know that more businesses and financiers will be there than negotiators of the state that, that we're going. So clearly, business and finance are uh, putting quite a, you know, a big neon sign saying this matters to us. We need a policy framework. We need an agreement. We need to understand how do we kind of bring nature into the conversation and how do we have this climate nature compact? Because you can't solve one without solving the other. So that's absolutely key. I think a lot of, um, work needs to be done before COP28. So, you know, Article 6 had, so, carbon markets effectively had some, um, I would say, on the fence type of agreements that went in around what you can keep confidential or what you can't keep confidential. But there's a lot more work that needs to happen before the next COP to actually move that conversation along. There's a lot more work that needs to happen in actually trying to figure out what does a loss and damage fund look like. There's huge amounts of work that need to flow into Thinking through that financial reform and resetting uh, both mitigation and potentially bringing in a new adaptation goal. We haven't spoken about adaptation quite a bit, but we've had, you know, this language around doubling of adaptation. But unless we have a separate adaptation goal, what ends up happening is you divert money from mitigation to adaptation. And that's clearly the wrong thing to do. You need to maximize both without having to play that game of, you know, taking from one pot to put into the other pot. So um, restating new version of 100 billion, which is going to be much bigger, as well as bringing in a lot more thinking around um, adaptation and the mechanics uh, of 
a lot of these announcements will be absolutely key. It sounds like there's a lot uh, still to be on out, which is always the, the case with with COP. It feels like uh, a step forward and then uh, the pathway set and a lot more to figure out down the down the road. But, um, you know, I don't want to keep any of you more time today. Uh, thank you so much for providing this. Uh, it's been a whistle-stop tour of everything that happened at COP27, but a very thorough and uh, well-explained uh, tour on that. So thank you so much for that. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. And for those listening, um, Sussy Talks will continue uh, for the remainder of this year and, of course, launching into 2023. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay positive and keep up the Sussy Talk.